0: On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: There's power in Satan. One more time. There's power in Satan parents were actually saw their child summon uh, Dungeons and Dragons demons into his room before he killed himself. Another scripture says that if you bring an abomination or an accursed thing into your house, then you will be accursed like it is. Would you say these toys are accursed to God? Oh, I would guarantee it.
0: The original Hebrew translation of the word Satan refers to an adversary, or more directly, one who throws something across one's path. In the Bible, the word Satan can certainly refer to the Satan, the actual character of the devil himself, but just as often also refers to a Satan, to whatever challenges you as you move through your life's journey. The entity of Satan, often seen as the fallen angel Lucifer, one who rejected the authority of God, has long been the symbol of the world's ultimate evil, the evil beyond humanity itself, the pain, the suffering, the death, and depravity, all made into a convenient villain that we can experience together. The satanic panic of the 1980s and early 90s is truly one of the most mystifying things I've ever studied. A serious and widespread belief was burning through the country, and not just among fundamentalists, That a secret network of satanic cults was indoctrinating kids and teens through music, movies, and games, hypnotizing them toward drug-fueled sex orgies and suicide, toward atrocious violent crimes, including ritual murder in the name of their dark lord. For part one of this two-part series, I'll cover the rise of organized Satanism beginning in the late 60s, which has mainly existed as a creative way to provoke those who believe without room for doubt, without humor, and sometimes with hate and intolerance. I'll also track the effect of the adversarial countercultures of the hippies and the metalheads and their apparent satanic crimes that would be hailed as proof of their evil, as well as proof that kids and teens were in serious moral peril. For part two, I'll cover what came next, a serious investigation into an imagined network of satanic cults operating in daycare centers all over the country. I'll try to understand this shocking decade in history, why it happened, and the cultural issues it was really about. As we'll see, the devil was everywhere in the 1980s, controlling everyone, most frighteningly, the young and impressionable, the wayward teenagers, the unsuspecting, unsupervised children. He was hypnotizing them with secret messages and backwards rock songs, teaching them occult magic in episodes of My Little Pony, and seducing them toward suicide through role-playing games believed to emit tiny screams when burned in a fireplace, all while helping religion blur into politics for good.
1: What is the story that you'd like to tell us? The story is that I think that the devil has been the guy that's kept the church in business for many, many years. Without him and the concept of evil, where would the church be? Are you planning on training a lot of little devils? (laughs) Only those that wish to become little devils. Do you have any little devils? Oh, yes, I have two. Are you going to raise them as satanic kids? Certainly, but not to go around chopping people up or sacrificing human beings, just to... uh, That would be the greatest reward of all if your kid some night would creep in and set fire to you and your lion. <laughs> well, no, huh? no. And then dance around with pitchforks and say, look at daddy, look at daddy! Huh?
0: That was Anton LaVey on Joe Pine's confrontational talk show in 1970. He was like the cartoon Satan of the love generation, the man who realized a new way he could capitalize on the counterculture's anti-establishment rebellion as well as play to long-held anxieties of spiritual evil. He wore Halloween devil horns, waxed his head shiny bald above a vampiric goatee and a black pentagram necklace. He was photographed often with a large snake around his neck. And his home, which appeared in the tabloids often, was filled with animal skulls, velvet, black candles, and of course, pentagrams, pentagrams, pentagrams. He founded the Church of Satan in 1966 using his recently published book The Satanic Bible as its foundational text. He used a maxim created by famous British occultist Alistair Crowley. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, basically do whatever you want and live for yourself. Levain's Satanism combined ideas of Nietzsche and Ayn Rand about individualism and selfishness, but it wasn't really about Satan at all as members of the church don't really believe he exists. They mainly believe in science and rationality. It was about what that character represented. The character of the fallen angel of Lucifer, the challenger, held the virtues of free thinking, rejection of authority, self-indulgence, an acceptance of an animal nature and of carnal desires. LeVay hosted parties full of drugs and sex, with strippers dressed as witches and vampires, weird novelty experiences that young Hollywood flocked toward, Megastar Jane Mansfield had a very public friendship with LeVay. Sammy Davis Jr. joined the church publicly in 1968. Documentary crews filmed a satanic wedding with a naked woman lying on an altar. LeVay walked his pet lion through the streets of San Francisco. The tabloids couldn't get enough, and neither could those that LeVay had set out to piss off in the first place. Religious convictions began to strengthen as the free-love anti-war counterculture rose up on both coasts. And with the official coming-out party of the Satanic Church, fundamentalism had its own, on-the-books adversary. And as the summer of love approached, they got their proof that Satan himself had in fact drilled up through American soil and hitchhiked straight to Hate ashbury to commune with who else but those fatally wayward hippies.
1: In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Poljanski.
0: Often considered the death knell of the love generation, Charles Manson and his band of flower-crowned spree murderers seemed to prove what American parents already believed. The hippies, with their free love and drug use, their strange, ungodly philosophies were actually in league with something much darker. Assumptions that the Manson family were a satanic cult were presented early on, and then prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi spun a whopper of a story about cultic mind control, the race war Manson wanted to invoke with ritual murders, and the hidden messages he believed to be in Beatles songs. The feeling began permeating the country that satanist cult leaders like Charles Manson were more common than could be imagined, and that these bearded-pied pipers were leading teenage girls and boys out of their hometowns onto sex-and-drug-fueled communes and into unspeakable occult criminal activity. Just a year before the Manson murders, Rosemary's Baby had been released, a horror film about a young woman's disturbing run-in with a cult of devil-worshippers run by her landlords who secretly impregnate her with a child of Satan. It was directed by Roman Polanski. Who at the time was married to actress Sharon Tate, the most famous victim of the Manson family who was stabbed brutally while pregnant with Polanski's baby that very next year. The story was an eerie coincidence that some believed was not a coincidence at all, but some kind of proof of the dangers of occult filmmaking. Four years later, The Exorcist, a film about the demonic possession of a young girl and a priest's attempt at helping her and her family, terrified America, producing true fits of fainting and vomiting.
1: I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie.
0: I passed out in in about the first half hour, yeah. Oh. Oh, God, I can't believe it. I'm just nervous. Famous scenes include the young girl puking violently, her head turning all the way around, and of course, most shocking of all to delicate sensibilities, violently masturbating with a cross while spitting out graphic blasphemies. Rumors soon spread about the film's very own demonic curse. During a screening in Rome, a storm surged around the theater as the audience filed inside. Shortly after, a giant 400-year-old cross on top of a nearby church was struck by lightning, causing it to fall dramatically into the plaza below. An extra in the film, Paul Bateson, would go on to become a serial killer, murdering six men. Mysterious deaths seemed associated with the cast. Objects would move on their own. Phones would fall off the hook. Late in the filming, The Exorcist hired a real exorcist to cleanse the studio. All these unexplained events led credence to the idea that satanic films could actually hold real satanic power, The supernatural seemed to be showing itself in a pop culture that had rejected traditional values, and the growing superstitions of a nervous nation allowed fertile ground for religious hucksters to make some serious money.
1: I got saved in 1966. I have a three-inch scar on my wrist where my friends used to cut my arm and bleed my blood into a cup and mix it with wine and urine and drink it for communion to Satan. I was involved as deeply as you can get.
0: Seventies Christian comedian Mike Warnke looked a little more flamboyantly rock and roll than his Christian contemporaries, sporting a single dangly earring and long curly hair. After sharing his testimony on stage, he published his memoir, The Satan Seller, in 1973, in which he goes from orphaned teenage drug addict to satanic high priest to evangelical convert. This book has it all. Child sacrifices, orgies, kidnapping, ritual murder, and magic spells. He even dedicates a few pages to the fourth level of working professional Satanists. That's right, the Illuminati. Thanks, Mike. And with that, the idea that there was a secret network of underground Satanists became a best selling Christian sensation and Mike, the trusted authority. So if this book is indeed the truth, Mike Wernke publicly admitted to assisting in several murders, kidnappings, drug trafficking, and brutal sexual assaults, including one where he commands his friends to kidnap a woman and then stomp on her hands until she agrees to have sex with the members of his coven. But of course, at the end of the book, he is born again and through the Holy Spirit is forgiven for all his crimes. The woman I just mentioned, well, she runs up to Mike in the street to tell him how much she loves him and forgives him because she herself has been born again. Mike then goes on to marry his childhood sweetheart, Sue, but then tries to strangle her to death in the night, and in one dramatic scene, Sue finally casts away the demons forever. All is forgiven with no legal ramifications, no rehabs, no therapy, no discernible change except for, of course, the Holy Spirit. Then the couple, wholly healed and hella holy and ready to influence the masses, start their own popular ministry to spread these very socially responsible and emotionally healthy messages. The Satan seller was not fully debunked until 1991, when it was revealed through an expose in the Christian magazine Cornerstone that Mike's family and friends stated on record that during the time of the alleged satanic cult activity, Mike was a clean-cut young Christian, one who only hung out with other Christian students. At the time, he claimed to have bleach-blonde hair and six-inch black fingernails. At the time, he was allegedly drinking blood and eating pinky fingers. He was actually spending his time bowling, playing croquet, and eating ice cream sundaes down at the local soda fountain. But before the official debunking, Mike would appear as an expert not only on fundamentalist programs, but also on the most mainstream TV talk shows that existed, including Oprah, Larry King, and 2020, which all treated his outrageous story as indisputable fact. His ministry was forced to close its doors only 100 days after the expose came out, and it was found that he was taking an $800,000 salary while claiming the ministry desperately needed more donations. Mike still swears that much of what he wrote was the truth, and the effect the book had essentially made that so anyway, at least in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who connected the rock-and-roll image of Mike's past satanic self with a rising counterculture even scarier than the one that came before. More after this. off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today.
1: Goat guns are GOAT! Our miniature gun models will make you the center point of attention. Display them at your office desk, bookshelf, or man cave. Collect and customize goat guns to your own liking. Each goat gun model has intricate parts that snap together to assemble. Start your next hobby
0: addiction at goatguns.com. And now, back to the show. In the early 1970s, rock and roll, which had long been associated with sexual deviancy, drugs, and the occult, leaned in hard into the rumors of their satanic ties. The heavy metal pioneers Black Sabbath began as a group called the Polka-Tolk Blues Band. But one day, as they were searching for a new name, they saw the title of a 1963 horror film on a movie theater's marquee. They chatted about how funny it was that people paid to see horror movies, that they paid to be scared, and that maybe they could bring horror into popular music. Guitarist Tony Iommi came to the other band members, including singer Ozzy Osbourne, with an unorthodox new idea to match their horror persona. Instead of the standard musical sequence used in blues music, he showed the group a different sequence, known throughout Catholic history as the Devil's Tritone, famous for the rumors of its banning by the church. It sounded dissonant, off, almost demonic, and it worked. The new counterculture, the new adversary, was even scarier than the hippies because they were bold and in your face about their allegiance to the Prince of Darkness. A movement was sparked, one covered in leather and giant hair, tattoos and chains, tight pants and inverted crosses, all built on creating an opposite, an adversary to the Christian majority. By the early 80s, fundamentalist preachers and televangelists all over the country were playing rock and heavy metal songs backwards, studying their strange sounds like righteous detectives. They focused, most famously, on Led Zeppelin's popular hit, Stairway to Heaven. A televangelist named Paul Crouch claimed that the secret satanic messages he could hear proved that the band was in cahoots with the devil and was subconsciously persuading young people to follow the path of the occult.
1: All right, we'll go on. You'll, you'll hear here's to my sweet Satan and it, then you'll hear there's power in Satan. Well let's just let's just go on
0: Okay, I can hear it and it's pretty creepy and maybe that's why this conspiracy didn't just stay in evangelical and fundamentalist circles. In fact, the state legislator of California actually looked into the rumors just in case there might be some truth to them. Both sides of the political spectrum were on alert. Come 1985, Tipper Gore, wife of then-Democratic Senator Al Gore, and several other wives of senators, created the Parents Music Resource Center and named their famous Filthy Fifteen, which included, among other acts like Madonna and Prince, many of the famous heavy metal bands of the time, like Judas Priest, Motley Crew, ACDC, Venom, and Merciful Fate. The Parents Music Resource Center demanded content-based ratings for songs, X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, D slash A for lyrics about drugs and alcohol, V for violent content, and O for occult references. Of course, these labels made parents feel a little more in control of their kids, but it only made teens covet the forbidden records even more. And alongside Teenage Misfits' love of heavy metal, there was another, possibly satanic pastime rising in popularity for others that didn't quite fit in.
1: Well, I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they yeah. take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces.
0: Dungeons and Dragons was the first true tabletop role-playing game, allowing players to create their own fantasy personas and situations, to go on different adventures based on the roll of a dice. It's like a never-ending choose-your-own-adventure in the form of a board game with the general goal of growing more powerful, but also of simply coming up with a good story. D&D's satanic ties first came under scrutiny in 1979 when 16-year-old computer science prodigy James Dallas Egbert III went missing from his Michigan State dorm room. When the police search fell short, his family hired private investigator William Deere. After studying James's suicide note and a corkboard of strange clues found in his dorm room, William Deere made the claim that James may have been attempting to play a real-life version of D&D in the steam tunnels under the school and was killed down there by accident. And James's parents accepted the theory publicly, which gave rise to new fundamentalist theories, the most popular being that D&D's Dungeon Master Guide contained instructions for carrying out a ritual sacrifice to Satan and that the bright young James had fallen prey. When he was found alive several weeks later, it turned out that James had indeed spent time in the steam tunnels under the school, but it had nothing to do with D&D. He had gone down there with the purpose of ending his life by overdosing on sleeping pills. When he awoke after 24 hours, disoriented but still alive, he hid out at an older man's house in New Orleans for the remainder of the month he was missing. Soon, William Deere would get to know the boy he had been searching for personally, as he worked on a book about the case, trying to dispel some of the satanic rumors he had accidentally started. It turned out that James had been suffering from serious depression and drug abuse, buckling under academic pressure from his parents, as well as serious loneliness. James was also very likely gay, and William Deere believed his parents cleaved so desperately to the D&D narrative so that they could avoid the topic of his sexuality being leaked to the media. And then two years later, another player, one named Irving Lee Pulling, shot himself in the chest. Understandably devastated and looking to find something to blame for the horrible tragedy, Irving's mother, Patricia Pulling, made the claim that Irving's principal cursed her son using D&D and that countless other teen suicides could be linked to the game. A devout Christian already aware of d and demonic reputation, Patricia found it bad, bothered about dungeons and dragons bad defined dnd this way a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology witchcraft voodoo murder rape blasphemy suicide assassination insanity sex perversion homosexuality prostitution satanic type rituals gambling barbarism cannibalism sadism desecration demon summoning necromantics divination and many other teachings Like televangelists, Patricia believed that this role-playing game was just a cover, and what D&D really contained were covert instructions for rituals in which susceptible teens would be hypnotized into out-of-control, sodomy-filled sex parties presided over by Satan himself. And if the devil could use a board game to possess teens, couldn't he do similar things to kids? That was the question on one man's mind, while deep into a 14-day fast that was requested directly by Jesus Christ himself, devout Christian Phil Phillips wandered aimlessly into an early 80s toy store and was struck by a frightening image, a plastic figurine holding an occult symbol in its hand. Pale-faced, he approached the register, purchased the toy, and then staggered out in what I can only imagine was a hunger-induced stupor, clutching the action figure in his clammy palm, unsure of why he had bought it. By his own account, he tossed the toy in his back seat and all but forgot about it, until God spoke to him a few days later, telling him about how the toy industry controls the youth with occult magic. This sparked Phil to undertake an intensive investigation into popular toys and the Saturday morning cartoons that were used to sell them, shows like He-Man and Thundercats, Care Bears and Rainbow Bright. Here's a mashup of Phil talking to Fundamentalist talk show host Gary Greenwald in 1984.
1: A little boy was seen out in the parking lot with He-Man in his hand, running around in circles saying, He-Man has more power than Jesus. The Care Bears use the Care Bear Stare, which is a power beam coming from the center of their stomach. What I'm seeing in Care Bears is almost like they're setting up their own religion. This is Tila. They call her the warrior goddess and this young lady is involved in witchcraft and you'll notice that she's a very voluptuous looking thing and they wear very tightly clad clothes and, and sometimes even neglige. Skeletor, the master of the universe. But there are some things about Smurfs that we need to look at. You know what happens to you when you die, you turn blue and your lips turn black. And Rainbow Bright is a very humanistic type toy. It displays many humanistic and new age symbols within it. It's a half man, half horse. He had horns coming out the side of his head, who kidnapped three of the ponies, and he's going to transform them to pull his chariot of darkness
0: Just like with every panic we'll cover, there is a kernel of truth to these fears, some real examples of crimes that had at least some mention of Satan involved. New York serial killer David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, committed a series of Lover's Lane murders in the 1970s, his confessed motive being that he was commanded to kill by his neighbor Sam's satanic dog. On the other coast, Night Stalker Richard Ramirez began terrorizing California in the mid-80s with crimes of breaking and entering, sexual sadism, and the extremely brutal murder of at least 13 people. Ramirez was a self-proclaimed Satanist, using pentagrams at the sites of his murders and forcing his victims to swear on Satan when he asked them questions. He even left an ACDC hat at one of the crime scenes, enough to mark the band forever after. When Ramirez entered the courtroom for the first day of his trial, he had a pentagram drawn on his palm, which he revealed to the jury as he yelled, Hail Satan! In addition, drifter serial killer Otis O'Toole, who is considered responsible for the murder of John Walsh's son Adam, who we talked about in our Stranger Danger episode, made claims that he had killed in the name of a widespread satanic cult called the Hands of Death that had contracted O'Toole and his best friend and fellow drifter serial killer Henry Lee Lucas to kill for them offering 10 grand per murder. And then there was 17-year-old Ricky Casso, a troubled misfit with an interest in Satanism who brutally murdered his friend Gary Lowers in the woods of Long Island in what police and the news reported was a Satanic ritual crime. Ricky, Gary, and their three buddies were high on LSD or mescaline or both and had just lit a fire in the wet evening using Gary's socks and denim shirt sleeves as kindling. At some point, the evening took a turn and Ricky freaked out, attacked Gary, bit him on the neck, and then stabbed him more than 30 times and sliced his eyeballs out. Ricky, known locally as the Acid King, had been kicked out by his parents in his early teens after several failed rehab attempts and psychiatric intakes. He started sleeping in the woods outside his family's suburb, taking copious amounts of drugs and reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. He was found digging up a colonial-era grave for unknown reasons and was arrested a year before the murder. In reality, Ricky had serious untreated mental illnesses and was taking a ton of psychoactive drugs. Police discovered that the murder was, surprise, surprise, not a satanic ritual, but a revenge killing for a stolen batch of PCP. Ricky Casso committed suicide in jail just 48 hours after his arrest, And in much the same way that the Manson family became the symbol for the hippie generation's downfall, he became the symbol for the heavy metal generation's final form, proof to fundamentalists that they were right all along. The photos of his arrest held the same manic energy as the photos of Manson did, and just to top it all off, he was wearing an ACDC shirt. These killers did not murder because of some kind of involvement in organized Satanism. It was just an easy stamp to mark on their crimes, an excuse for their ugly behavior, a narrative guaranteed to get a ton of attention from the media and maybe an insanity plea. The Son of Sam admitted through several interviews with his court-appointed psychiatrist that the demon story was nothing but a way to commit violent crime without taking personal responsibility. He felt the world had rejected him and he wanted revenge, especially against women in general, who he believed did not pay him the attention he deserved. Criminologists believe that Richard Ramirez was simply a thrill killer who latched onto the symbolism of spiritual evil. He was likely a clinical narcissist, one who loved the attention a public trial afforded him, showing up in dark clothes and dark sunglasses, ready to prove to America that he was an enigma. Investigators also discovered, of course, that Otis O'Toole and Henry Lee Lucas were not paid by a satanic network. They were just run-of-the-mill, horrifying serial killers. But the real stories didn't seem to matter, not when compared to the lurid tales of a national satanic hypno-cult, because the signs seemed like they were everywhere, and any poorly spray-painted pentagram or Hail Satan became definitive proof of a local Satanist coven, one that was certainly plugged into the national network, rumored to reach Illuminati levels. But of course, no evidence of such a network has ever been found. It is true, though, that to this day, members of the Church of Satan, as well as the newer Satanic Temple... Do all sorts of things to antagonize fundamentalists while fighting for equality, from challenging Missouri's conservative abortion laws on the basis of their own religious beliefs, to erecting a statue of the goat god Baphomet and demanding it be placed on legislative property next to a six-foot marble slab of the Ten Commandments, which they view as violating the separation of church and state. So, if you consider Satan to simply be an adversary, as the original translation suggests, Then the organized Satanists were truly Satanic, as were the hippies and the metalheads and the beats and the flappers that came before, all of whom were called Satanic in their time. Countercultures, no matter how flawed, by necessity question the reality of the majority's belief structure, throwing serious sticks across their path at every step. It's almost a teenager's job to be a Satan, to be an adversary, to shake things up, to dream wildly and stupidly and beautifully, to chant or sing or scream a new future into being. Consistently, teenagers and young adults also invigorate the charge toward equality and acceptance as the older generation lags in their own idealism and eventually hardens up against societal change. And to these youth cultures, the adults become a kind of Satan, something coldly antique to fight against. It's through our adversary through our opposite, that we attempt to define who we are, and maybe, more importantly, who we are not. Often, members of the aging overculture fight against the challenging of their own reality. They fight most intensely, it seems, to remain in a world where they don't have to consider varying beliefs, where they don't have to be challenged, a world that stays just the same or even goes back to how it was before while the wayward youth sin their way stubbornly toward an ever-freer world. Panics around the satanic cults of the 1980s were yet another sleight of hand, another psychic dumping ground for growing anger and anxiety about moral decay, the morality of the youth, and the future of a country moving, somewhat steadily in the 1970s, toward a rationalist, sex-positive, feminist future. The demonically possessed women of 70s horror, one a 12-year-old girl and the other a pregnant mother, are easy representations of the underlying anxieties that were simmering, anxieties that, as we have seen and will further see in part two, boiled over in the 1980s into an all-out culture war. Something important I've yet to mention is that alongside these panics over Satan's influence, a new movement was quietly growing, one that would alter the course of our country dramatically. These progressive societal changes around the rights of women and the changing landscape of sexuality inspired famous televangelist Jerry Falwell to challenge the previously held belief in Baptist circles that politics and religion should be kept separate. Upset by what he saw as the widespread destruction of the nuclear family, He launched the Moral Majority Movement in 1979 in order to mobilize Christian voters to vote on specifically Christian issues, gaining membership in the millions. The rise of the moral majority was running exactly parallel to these satanic panics, providing a sensational adversary that strengthened their cause all the more. With their support, born-again actor Ronald Reagan would become the president of the United States in 1980, and the fundamentalist influence on the political right would be cemented for good. All these factors—rumors of organized Satanism, the rise of modern feminism, the supposed breakdown of the nuclear family, Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion, and the growing knowledge around the sexual abuse of children by sensational kidnapping cases discussed in our first episode on Stranger Danger—created a cultural pressure cooker that finally burst— Culminating a hysterical decade with the longest and most expensive trial in U.S. history, with daycare workers across the country accused of horrifying satanic ritual abuses of children, with police digging up abandoned lots and cemeteries all over the nation, searching for the supposed bodies of infant human sacrifices. On the surface, the adversary of the 1980s was certainly Satan and the members of his cults, as well as the countercultures he apparently controlled. But for part two, we'll look to the very first manifestation of the Dark Lord to uncover what these panics were really about. The serpent, the one who slithered into the Garden of Eden and the original biblical adversary, the disobedient woman, the one who took the blame for the fall of man and for all the ills that were to come. Next time on the show, Part Two of Satanic Panic will focus on the hysteria around the satanic ritual abuse of daycare children in the early 1990s, and that's coming after the holidays. American Hysteria is written and produced by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, and produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios. Check out the show notes now to follow us on social media, and make sure you leave us a review if you get a chance. Thanks so much for listening, and please take care.